Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, if you got your Bible, uh, jump over to it. Uh, by the way, quick note on the Operation Christmas Child. It would be so cool if we just kind of jumped in there together as groups. And I'm going to send out some stuff on GroupMe um, from Marna that she talked about. And, and maybe you can group up and go together in some of those time slots and, and just be there and pack bags. And uh, there's literal, not bo bags, there's boxes that are over there. Uh, you can grab one as you leave tonight. I think it'd be really awesome if all of those boxes were gone, uh, not just because y'all get them and then never fill them, but because you get them and you fill them and you bring them back. That would be absolutely awesome uh, for us just to step up in that way. And it, it really does remind me of Acts 4 and what we saw at the end of Acts 2 of what the church does, what the body of believers uh, do. We are generous people. We are giving of ourselves, uh, even to a point where it isn't easy, right? And I know maybe some of you don't have a lot of money in your bank account. And you're like, well, the dollar store, that will have all of my money by the end of this thing. And even if that's 12 bucks, and you know what? Okay, uh, wherever you, whatever you do have, uh, scripture's clear. I mean, God loves a cheerful giver. He's not looking for some percentage of your money, which we'll talk about in a second. He loves a, a cheerful giver who wants to be a part of, of what God is doing all around the world. So I would love for us to jump in and do that. Recap, the church of God is growing, it is flourishing, it is exploding in so many ways. I mean, it is widening. There are more and more people added to the number of this church uh, all the time, but it, it is also deepening that the people are maturing. They are looking more and more like Christ. They're uh, looking and their world is, is a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like daily. And it's this beautiful thing that we get to see and, and, and get a glimpse of, right, that of, of this is what God's people can do. So loving, so giving of themselves, so sacrificial, so gracious, and yet bold with their faith, even in the midst of opposition. That was what Acts 4 brought into the picture is all of a sudden people outside of the church of God started to persecute the church. There was a lot of external pressure, mainly from the religious leaders. I mean, the people that were from their own country, they're saying, hey, you don't talk about this Jesus guy. And the religious leaders, the same guys that killed Jesus, that had him crucified a few months ago, are now bringing them in and saying, you can't talk about this Jesus. Threatening them if they are to continue. And so that was kind of the first test for the early church. And we saw they passed it with flying colors said hey we understand you might persecute us and you all do all of these things but our obedience is to the lord we're going to obey god even if that means we're in opposition to our own people our own nation and so they gathered together they prayed which is what we did last week so incredible so powerful and in that we're bold with our faith even in the midst of opposition to share truth with others and so the first test was on the outside, persecution from the outside. And I think a long-standing belief is that the most dangerous threat to the church is opposition and persecution from outside the church. But what we're going to see in Acts 5 is that the most dangerous thing is actually perversion inside the church. That is the greatest threat to the church. It's when all of a sudden we alter, we twist, we pervert the original intention of God, the original meaning of God, the original state of what the church is meant to be and who consists of it. When that gets messed up, when that gets twisted, we're going to have some problems. So that's why Luke brings this story in. This is the first time we have sin recorded in the early church. Not the first time somebody sinned in the early church, that's daily, but the first time they mention, hey, sin happened in the church, and here's how God dealt with it. And if you're, I mean, think about this. This is why I, I want, I think this is so important for us. If you're Luke and you're recording how incredible uh, this, this God movement is in your midst, what are you probably going to leave out? The stuff that doesn't look good, right? You're probably not going to leave it. Oh, yeah, and by the way, these people lied and then they died and we buried them. Like, you're probably not going to talk about that. You're going to be like, oh, well, no, it was mainly good, mainly good. No, no, no. Luke deals with it because it's important for us to see that this is a danger. 
small story. When I was a, a counselor out at Sky Ranch, uh, we got our cabin, and I, I found like there were four other guys, or yeah, three other guys. It was a group of four of us that we were going to be counselors for the whole summer together, and we were praying. We were so excited getting to know each other, and, and it was just, man, we, it just felt like we clicked, and we were so excited, and these guys were awesome. And uh, I was pumped. Our leadership, they were pumped, and we had a leader guy come in, and he sat with us. He said, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I don't think there's a group of campers uh, that are going to be a problem for you guys. Like, there's not anybody pointing to our cabin. He says, there's not anybody in, that, in those bunks that are really going to be a struggle for you. So you guys are strong in geology. You know all of these things. Like, you're going to be able to love those guys well, and I don't think you're going to stumble over there. He said, the problem and where Satan is going to try and disrupt the ministry y'all are going to be able to do is amongst each other. He says God is going, or Satan is going to work on the inside of you in disrupting that and pulling you guys apart because that's going to affect the ministry you do to everybody else. And I think we all left that conversation just being like really pumped because somebody said we're gonna we're awesome, right? And we didn't really take to heart what he had said. Fast forward about five weeks later, we're halfway through the summer and I'm out in uh, the cabin where all the campers stay and then we have a little counselor room on the side and I'm out in the cabin where all the uh, campers are at and I'm talking to them, I'm just kind of having conversations and I don't really see any of my co-counselors anywhere, like the other three guys, I'm like, I don't know where they are, I don't know what's going on and I just kind of stick out here and I'm talking to them because I don't want to leave them unattended, they can be chaotic sometimes, but it had been about 10 minutes and I had not seen any of my other co-counselors, which is very rare. And so I went back to our counselor room and the door was shut, which is also very rare. And I opened the door just to see what's going on. I'd be like, hey, where are you guys? Why aren't you out here with the campers? And I walk in to our, our cabin leader and our co-cabin leader, literally face to face, like blood red, mad at each other with the co my, my cabin leader saying, I am sick and tired of you not respecting me. And then the other one saying back, it's like, well, I don't think you're a guy worth respecting. And then my other uh, friend, he was sitting on the bunk and he was like, guys, 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 <laughs> like trying to get their attention. And I just close the door <laughs> and I just go back to be with the campers. I'm like, someone's got to be with the campers. I'm just going to let this whole thing figure, get figured out. And uh, long story short, our whole group of, of counselors that did so well, I mean, we, we meshed in, in certain ways, but more than anything else, all of our kind of our life stories and our passions and the gifts that we had meshed really well to love the people in our cabin, right? There wasn't a single uh, camper background or personality type that, that we couldn't love, but because we couldn't get along, because something got in between us, there was a problem on the inside, it nullified our ability to love people on the outside. You see what I'm saying here? You see what's happening? In the same way, what happens here in the church, if there's a problem within the church, when things get hazy, when people start going in opposite directions, there's a twist and a perversion in it, we're going to have a problem. And so we're going to see what that problem is and how God views it and deals with it. Acts chapter 5. First, I actually want you to look at Acts 4, 36. Uh, they added chapter numbers and verse numbers uh, later. Luke did not do the verse numbers. And so sometimes, uh, usually they do a great job with this, but sometimes I just wish it was different because verse 36 plays perfectly into Acts 5 to set the scene of what's going on. You're going to see first a great example. And then second, you're going to see a terrible warning. You're going to see a great example in Joseph or Barnabas, and you're going to see a terrible example in Ananias and Sapphira. So read with me in 36. I'm going to read for a while so we just get this whole context here. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 5, but... A man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet just like Barnabas did. But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval about, of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded her, to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Wow. Pretty intense, right? That's pretty intense. And as if the first reading, 30,000 foot view, you're probably thinking to yourself, wow, God, that's a little harsh. Like, that's pretty harsh. I mean, they just, I mean, they lied, but I lie all the time and I'm not dead, right? Like, that's not something that's gone. I don't just get struck dead immediately. What's going on here? What's going on in this story? First, you see Barnabas, a man named Joseph, actually, but they call him Barnabas because he's the son of encouragement. It's almost always a good thing when you get a nickname in the scriptures. You become a pretty key uh, figure throughout of it. And this guy is known for his encouragement, that he is constantly encouraging people. He is a great example to so many. And he, Barnabas, is going to show up in Acts a ton. He's going to go on so many of the missionary journeys with Paul. Uh, he is an incredible man. And the church acknowledged Barnabas. And we can kind of wonder as this thing goes, we see how great Barnabas is. And then you're Ananias and Sapphira and you see, wow, look at this Barnabas guy. They gave him a new nickname. He's called son of encouragement. Like they're, they're praising him. They're affirming how generous he is. And if you're Ananias and Sapphira, they start to, start to talk and scheme a little bit together and say, well, we want to be looked at the same way this guy is. So we're going to sell a little piece of land. Uh, Barnabas is an attractive land that's much bigger, attractive land, and, and he gives all of it to the apostles. And then here, Ananias and Sapphira, they give a piece of a property, and then they give some of it, but they don't give all of it. So what we have is they're trying to kind of play along in this thing so that they can get the approval of man, that they will be praised by man just like Barnabas was. And that's not really going to go well for them at all. Now, here's some things to know about Ananias and Sapphira. First of all, Ananias means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. That's Ananias' name. And Sapphira means sapphire. Not that much of a stretch, right? It means sapphire. It means beautiful. The Lord is gracious and beautiful. It's almost irony in the story, right? That gracious and beautiful do the exact opposite thing. In, dece in deception and not in grace giving, but deception and manipulation to look good for their grace giving. So they sell a piece of their property and they kept back some of the price for themselves with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Now, here's, here's what the problem is. Here's the problem that they start to deal with. It's not that they only gave some of the money that they got from this land, right? That's not the problem that we're looking at. You might be thinking, dang, they kept back 50% of that stuff and that's why they died. No, 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 no. 
That's not the problem. If you look at verse 4, you're going to see it. While it remained unsold. This is what Peter's talking to him. He says, so when you didn't sell this thing, it was still in your possession, right? Did it not remain your own? And even after you sold it, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? What Peter is saying here is saying, hey, 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 we didn't force you to sell this property. We didn't force you to give us any of the money that you got from selling your property. And I think what, what's happening here is Ananias and Sapphira, they're just seeing all of these other people like Barnabas giving so generously, laying all of this money at the apostles' feet to, to meet the needs of people that were around them. And they're just picking up on this and they're saying, well, I guess this is what these kind of people do and we wanna be like them. We wanna get the praise like all of these other people are getting. And they don't understand that this was out of generosity that Barnabas gave. That the apostles, they're not demanding money from anybody. It was because these people have been so radically transformed by God's grace that they give grace to others. That they now understand that nothing they have belongs to them, but God who gives it. And when we begin to transform by the grace of God, our lives start to look a little bit differently. The things of this world, we start to hold them loosely. And the things that we had such a tight grip on, we start to loosen that grip on those things. And it was for Barnabas, he said, I don't need this land. I just wanna give it to what God is doing. And so a little church 101, we talk about uh, tithing, right? You probably heard this term of what tithing is. You give 10% uh, of what you earn and you give that to the church because that's the rule. It's not actually the rule. That's an Old Testament idea and, and there's a few times that that shows up throughout the Old Testament where you would give 10% uh, and that happens on two or three different occasions uh, with specific circumstances that are in that. If we're actually going off a percentage, that number would probably be closer to 20% uh, where, where God would command his people to give in certain ways. And it wasn't necessarily earnings. I mean, there'd be times where they would give like 10% of their livestock, 10% of a sacrifice that they would give, 10% of all that they had for specific circumstances. And that was under the law that was under the Mosaic covenant. And now here we are in the New Testament. We're under a new covenant by what Jesus has done all throughout the New Testament. There's never a command to give 10%. There's never a command where you say, okay, what you do as a Christian is give 10%. That's what your tithe is. That's the rule. Check the box. Just do it. It's not there. You can look for it. But what we do see in the scriptures, as Paul talks to it, mainly in, in his letters to the church in Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see that God loves a cheerful giver. That God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus, as the people are going to the, the, the temple and they pay their temple tax, so all of these guys are giving uh, one one coin, one coin, one coin, one coin, and then a poor older lady comes by and she gives two coins and he stops everything. He says, all these rich guys, all these other people that are well off, they just give one coin because that's the rule. This lady, she gave two even though she had less than these men. What's Jesus getting at? So God loves a cheerful giver. He's not after us just to hit this checklist thing, say, okay, I gave my 10% for the month, I'm good. That's not the heart of giving. In fact, if you were go around a DBC and maybe you've been there on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, there is no passing of the plate. There's never this, all right, make sure you give. There's never any of these speeches that are made or anything of that sort. And I'm not saying passing the plate is always bad or anything, I get that, that's sometimes the easiest way to do it, but if you've ever been in those circumstances and the, the, the plate is going by, you know everybody's kind of giving this side-eye thing, right? Like, are you gonna give money? Is everybody giving money? Like, how much did you give? Is that a 20? Oh my gosh, like, you know, we kind of do all this thing and it's kind of this, this obligation, social pressure that we feel around us. And so here at Denton Bible, we're, saying, hey, that's between you and the Lord. 
we trust God and we believe the mission that we're doing and we believe that God's people, when they see what is happening here, are going to want to support that in financial ways, in prayer, and in active participation of it. And so the heart of God is so much more as giving as we see fit in a way that is joyful, not just some mechanical, robotic, yeah, I just, I swipe my card, I set up my auto pay, and I don't think about it ever. It's an active support, a joyful generosity that the people of God would experience excuse me, would experience. And so that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying, hey, nobody's here, nobody here is forcing this money out of your pocket. This is an obligation thing. This is a joyful thing that these people are doing. He said, this was your money all along. So, so the problem isn't that they gave half of the money. It's that they said they gave it all and they lied about it. They only gave a portion of it. The sin is not that he gave part of the money to the church. The sin was that he lied about how much he gave. And, and at the end of the day, Ananias wanted to be seen as a godly person. He wanted to be seen as godly. He wanted a godly appearance. He wanted the praise of man. And so he used the church. He really used God to satisfy the idols of his heart. That is a dangerous place to be that you are using God to look good, to get the approval of man. That is dangerous. And as we pull all of this stuff down and the reason why it's so dangerous at the heart of this thing, it's hypocrisy. This is hypocrisy. And if you have been around the world at all, one of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity is hypocrisy. That the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you've heard it all the time. Maybe you think the exact same thing or you thought the exact same thing in the past. Well, here's, here's what this is. Hypocrisy can come in a few different forms. Um, probably most often in what we see here, Hypocrisy is when your behavior doesn't match up to what you say. When your behavior does not match up to what you say. Or when you say you believe something and yet your life doesn't conform to it. Say, I believe this, but your life doesn't show that. When you say, I'm a follower of Christ and everyone around you says, really? You're a follower of Christ? I know, to be, I know Jesus to be loving and holy and patient and kind and honest and truthful. He says, you're none of those things. See, that's hypocrisy. When we say we follow, when we say we believe, and yet our life doesn't reflect that. Or even another one, when you condemn others for the very things you are guilty of yourself when you condemn others for the very things you are guilty of yourself. See, this is hypocrisy. And I guarantee you all of us have probably been hypocrites at certain parts of our life, and we have seen people that live in blatant hypocrisy. I have a, a speculation that, um, and I say this because I've just, I've been around kids and students and uh, ministries that just kind of involve families a whole lot. And uh, maybe in, in my, my days and down, probably before me, I don't know, maybe this is all the time, but there are a lot of, of parents that maybe have a no, nominal, uh, very shallow belief in Christianity or, or claim of Christianity, but their lives don't really reflect that. And church is just kind of something you do. You just kind of go to church as a family. You always go to church, but the rest of your days like, don't really look like that at all. There isn't really a, a full devotion to the Lord, and that produces a bunch of people that are just kind of meh towards Christianity. And, and more and more and more, parents are just kind of throwing their kids at the church saying, you disciple them, you fix them, you do all the spiritual stuff. Like, that's not my thing. That's not my deal. And that has just grown this resentment in people towards religion and towards Christianity because they have their parents that would say all of these things and would put up their face in the public sphere, but then back home, it doesn't look anything like it. 
And it's like, do, do, we, we catch on to that, right? We see through that. We know kids see through that. And there's a moment for all of us in this room where we ourselves had to make that step and we had to push through it ourselves. Now, I hope many of you had awesome believing parents that are solid in their faith and walk with the Lord and, and that you have learned from them as an example. I hope that's true. But I think all of us have seen that and, and it's quick to, to wear down on us and for us to see through it. And so hypocrisy has done such a damage to the church because we have so many people in this world that will claim a, Christ, a Christianity, that will wear a cross or whatever it is, but there is no genuine conversion. There is no transformed life. There is no radical, I actually want to live for God. And I know I'm sounding harsh in this moment because all of us are sinful, right? All of us are broken. We're not perfect. There is no perfect performance that any of us have put on. But I think we know a genuine heart when we see it. A striving with God, even amongst, amongst stumbling, that we get back up, we seek forgiveness, and we continue to grow. So my hope for us in this room, my hope for what we are about is a people that take hypocrisy seriously. That we don't claim one thing and live another way. That we don't say we are Christians and give this godly appearance, but deep down, we are the opposite. We're not a group of people that just kind of have this mask on every time we show up to church. Because that's not the way. It's exhausting, and, and we'll get to that in a second. But when you say, I've given Jesus my all, I'm a follower of Christ, that you're going to live for him. But then in your actions, you say, except in my thought life. Like, I'm going to live for God, but often my thoughts run rampant and I don't really check them at all. I'm going to live for God, except in the way that I manage my money. I'm going to give my all to Jesus, except these secret addictions that I have and I hide and I cling to, except with my relationships, except with my integrity in school and how hard I work in these things. I'm going to give my all, and yet secretly deep down you know you're holding something back. Friends, if that's you, we're just like Ananias. We're just like him. He did it with his property. We're doing it with our lives. And God takes that seriously. He takes it so seriously. Now, here's the solution to this problem. It's not to get even better at hiding your sin. <laughs> That's not it. It's also not to just stop trying to be a Christian because you're failing at it. Those aren't the solutions in the slightest the solution is to be honest about our struggles and sin. It's to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. It's saying, hey, I'm a broken human being in need of grace. I am in need of grace and forgiveness because I am sinful and I struggled. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. And I am still broken and I am still in need of grace. And I am still honest about my struggle. We walk in the light. But if we're a bunch of people that put on a mask, that put on this appearance of godliness, I mean, then we're no better than Ananias. We're no better than him at, this all, at, at all. And so if you're in this room and you're hiding sin, you put up this face, you, you have this second life about you, and you put on a good face every Tuesday night, you say all the right things, it's Sunday mornings, whatever it is. Let me just tell you, you can't fool God. You might be able to fool this room. You probably can. You probably have. But you can't fool God. And here's some better news. You don't have to fool God. You don't have to hide anything from God. One, he's omniscient, all-knowing, already knows. Okay? <laughs> Let's just get that out of the way. There's nothing that's hidden from him. Two, that's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. That's why we're in this room. 
We are not in this room because we're a bunch of people that are good enough to be right with God. We're not a bunch of people that are good enough was good enough because our good enough isn't good enough. I said that too many times. I'm lost what I was saying. But here's the deal. If we really, truly believe the gospel brings salvation to sinners, then there's no reason to hide our sin. Why? Because if you believe in Jesus, there is an acknowledgement that you are a sinner. Everybody knows the cat's out of the bag. We're all broken people. The only question is where our brokenness lies. And it's probably in every aspect of our life. So if we go around and we try and fake this and give this appearance of godliness that we've got it put together and we can perform well, we are living antithetically to what the gospel says about us and the gospel that we believe and the gospel that we walk in. And yeah, that's going to be confusing, if not infuriating, to a watching world that thinks that this is some just elite group of people that think they're better than everybody else and condemning because they're stuck in their sin. But when we go to the world and say, hey, I'm broken, I am sinful, and I am in need of a Savior, and that's why Jesus came and died, and he offers that same grace to you. And I'm no better than you. There's not good people and bad people. There's broken people and a forgiving God, and there's forgiven people. That's what it is. We're all enemies of God. We're all bad people. None of us are here, and none of us are right with God because of our performance, because of our behavior. So I have a hope, man, in our, our generation and as we grow old, that hypocrisy would not be a word that is ascribed to the church, to the people of God. Why? Because we are so open with how broken we are and how in need of, oh gosh, how broken we are and how in need we are of a savior. That dispels hypocrisy. There is no longer a need to put up this performance and to try and show people or trick people rather that we've got it all together and we were worthy of being saved because we tried really hard every single week. That is legalism and hypocrisy put together and it is a great threat to the church. And so God deals with it. In Ananias' case, he dies immediately. He's carried out, he's buried. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in, probably beautiful, Sapphire. She gets asked the same question, says, hey, oh, so you guys sold that for 250? Said, yep, 250. Ladies, let me just tell you something. Your submission is first and foremost to Christ. You submit to him. And if you start following or walking or getting married to a guy and he goes outside of submission to God and there's a decision to be made, submit to God. Submit to him. And if you start walking with a guy and spending time around a guy and you're saying, man, this guy is not submitted to God. Go the other way. This is a great example. I'm not saying you're going to die if you don't. I don't know what's going to happen, right? But your submission is to the Lord. Don't ever get confused. Do never, don't ever get manipulated by some guy that uses God to get you to submit. Okay? You follow a guy that is yielded to God in all ways. And when he messes up, yes, when he messes up, he's humble. He's teachable. He will learn from his mistakes. He owns those things, and he walks back to the cross. He walks in repentance. That's a guy worth being with and following to death, not this death, a death like old age, right? How about that? That would be awesome. Okay, that's my little note for you ladies. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they are a warning to all of us that hypocrisy is a dangerous thing and God deals with it severely in this example, right? Because this is the early church. This is the early church. Everything is just starting out and the people of God need to know that this is dangerous and this won't be tolerated and this will not bring about flourishing in the church. And so God deals with, deals with it immediately and publicly. Does he still do that today? Obviously not because all of us are still living and breathing, right? 
We've all lied. We've all been hypocrites. We've all faked it till we maked it. And yet we're still alive. The warning is still here for us. And that's by God's grace that we're still living and breathing after the sin that we committed earlier, after the thought that we thought in the middle of worship. And this is a God of grace that gives us breath because it is entirely possible that any moment in time, God could bring us home. We don't know for sure that Ananias and Sapphira are believers, but everything in the scriptures up to that point saying this is the people of God. All of those who believed were together. All of those who believed were giving of these things. And there's no mention that they weren't. We don't know for a fact, but it is entirely possible that these were two believers that went astray, that were still being gripped by the things of the world. And God made them an example and he called them home. It is also entirely possible that they are not believers at all. We don't know. It's for our speculation. But the warning is here, and it's severe. For us, he is extending time to come clean. If you're here and you're hiding, and there's things that are in here, you're saying, I'm going to the grave with I can't tell anybody. People can't know that I struggle with that. People can't know that I've done that. People can't know this. I can't tell these people. They can never know. I'm going to just figure this out on my own. Let me just tell you, that was me in high school. That was me with all of these things that I was dealing with and all of this stuff that I had going on and all of these addictions. I said, oh, I'm not going to tell my friends. I'm not going to tell my huddle group or whatever that is. I, I'm going to figure this out on my own. And, and then maybe later I'll say in the past tense, like, oh, yeah, I used to struggle with that. And it ate me alive. And I never, ever got rid of it as long as I just held it in here. And the reason why, and this is a funny phrase, and I love it, and I think it's true, you can't fight Satan in the dark. He lives there. He's better there. As long as you keep your sin silent, you're not going to get rid of it. You're never going to come clean of it. For he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. Proverbs 28, 14. This is the way God has wired us. That in the light, we would find freedom. We would find healing. We would find mercy. And so in the example of Ananias and Sapphira, take the mask off. Now, I'm not encouraging you to stand up right now and just admit all of your addictions and sins and struggles. That's not the goal of this night. But hopefully you have people in your life that you know love you, that you know care for you, that will point you to the cross, that you will mind you of grace. And just like Jesus does to, to, to people that were in prostitution, right, that were caught in the middle of adultery, he says, get up, no one condemns, no one condemns you, go and sin no more. I mean, that's beautiful. He says, hey, there's grace, there's forgiveness. Now let's go and sin no more. Let's forsake this sin. Let's walk the other direction. That's beautiful. That is the perfect amount of, of grace and truth, that this is forgiven, but we don't live in this. This is a mess. This is muck and mire. Let's walk to God because he's better. That's where freedom is. That's our encouragement, that there is grace here. There's consequences to sin. And we're going to have to deal with those. We can't run from them, that we walk through those. But praise God that our vertical relationship with him is not ruined and severed by our sin. And that we can run to him at any time, no matter how messy we are. That's grace. And that is what is offered here and I hope is extended here. And I hope you find that here in a life group, in a foundation group amongst your friends that you have here. And maybe it's tonight where you start to walk through these things. Verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard of these things. Fear doesn't just mean you're, you're scared. 
It's not just like, oh, that's terrifying. Even though there's probably a reality that that was scary <laughs> for everybody, it's a healthy understanding of God's character. That's what the scriptures are talking about. It's a healthy understanding of how holy God is and his hatred of sin. It's not just some fear that you're going to get slapped around. It's a man, I don't, I don't want to go down the road of sin. I don't want to go down that road. Fear can actually be a friend that alerts us danger is ahead if we continue on this way. I hope you get afraid when, I don't know if you would ever do this, but I know some of you have and whatever this, but I went cliff diving one time and uh, it was this cliff that just kind of like ran up. And, and so there was a part where you could jump off like 10 feet and that was really nice and fun. And like all the other like nine-year-olds were there that were doing it. And I was like, this is more my style. <laughs> and, uh, and then it goes all the way up to about 45 feet, which is just terrifying, okay? It's absolutely terrifying. And I was like, okay, I'll do 10. I'll do 10, I'll do 15. And you just kind of keep going up. And then obviously there's this peer pressure thing and everyone's like, oh, you should jump with us. We're gonna do cool pictures or whatever. And some of my friends, they're just insane. And they would just run and like do gainers off the 45 foot thing. And they're just like flying and twirling through the ground and just boom. I'm like, that's terrifying to me, right? That there is a fear I experience. I'm like, I don't want to forge ahead into that because I don't think it's going to go well for me. And then uh, there were some other guys, like we were trying to, there's a picture out there somewhere in the world. These guys were standing at this 45, the ledge of the 45 foot cliff. And they tried to do like a little triple stack thing uh, where they like one on the shoulders and then the third one on the shoulders of the guy that's on the second shoulders, right? It's, it was nuts. And they had like all these people that were holding them up and they like finally got this last guy up there and they're just like trudging over to the ledge. And I'm like, is anyone gonna say this isn't, gonna, this isn't a good idea? And uh, we're like taking these pictures and I'm like looking over there. And uh, all these guys are like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be sick. You know, like who's filming, who's filming? And I like, I'm looking at him and this guy in the bottom, like he's, he's laughing. The guy in the second, like in the middle row, he's like not really laughing anymore. He's like just holding on. And this guy in the third, like fear in his eye, just like, this is like death I'm staring at. And I, like, I just go over there, I'm like, hey, have you guys like, have you thought this through? <laughs> And uh, the other, they were not believers at all. And they were like, oh, whatever, and all this stuff. And, uh, and so I just asked the guy, I was like, do you want to do this? And he was like, I don't know, man. I don't think so. And then the other guy was like, no, I don't want to do this anymore at all. And so they're like, get down. And all the other guys are calling him, you know, bad words and all this stuff. And he was just looking around. He's like, thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, I think you saved my life. And, and I'm like, that's a, that's, I'm, I don't even know this guy, and I'm a better friend than all of his other friends, okay? And that's not to, like, toot my own horn, but, but there's something about fear, right? Like, I should be afraid of forging this way because I don't think it's going to go well for me. And friends that love us will tell us the same. Say, hey, I think you're walking in a way that isn't what God has lined up for you. Like, I don't think you're walking in step with the Spirit anymore. And I, just because I love you and I care for you, I think you should reconsider, or I think you should turn around, or I think you shouldn't be with those friends anymore. I don't think you should get in that situation anymore. And sometimes that fear we feel is a great gift of the Spirit. It's a great gift of the Spirit. Now, I will say the fear that you experience when you're about to share the gospel is probably just nerves of awkwardness and rejection, and you should push through that. And I think that's also walking by the Spirit. Fear is not always good. You have to discern that. But this is a great example. It's a grave example of walking with God and walking in the light because that's where the gospel works. It's in the light. It's in our acknowledgement, our confession of sin. Now, I'm way over time, but it doesn't matter. Psalm 32, this is a great example. You need to know this. You need to memorize it. Um, this is from David when he... Um, slept with Bathsheba, and, which was not his wife, and then he knew he messed up, and so he tried to kind of make things better by having uh, Uriah, which was Bathsheba's husband, he brought him back from war, which David should have been at war, but he wasn't at war, and so he then slept with Bathsheba, and he had all these things, and, and so he's trying to kind of figure this out, and so he, he says, hey, you should go sleep with your wife, Bathsheba, so that, uh, you know, no one would think anything if you had a kid or whatever. And, and he walks through all of this stuff and he just kind of digs his hole and digs his hole and digs his hole. And then he has uh, Uriah killed because 
you know, once you get to a certain point and you just try, keep trying to make things better in your own strength, it's only going to get worse because God's rigged it that way, <laughs> okay? And, and so here's a reflection of David as he is thinking about this sin and how long he hid this sin. Verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Not covered up by man's efforts, but covered up by the grace of God. He said, that's where blessing is. it is. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So you want to be blessed? Don't have any deception in here. Don't hide anything in here. Here's David telling his story, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Why is that? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat, fever heat of summer. And hiding that is exhausting. The conviction of God was heavy upon David. I am worn out because I have this in my, my heart and I got it in my head and, and I just, I don't want to tell it to anybody. I just want to hide it, but it's killing me. It is driving me insane. The conviction that I feel, the guilt that I feel is wearing me out. It's exhausting. And what does he do? Verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I acknowledged my sin to you. That's what confession is. The word is homoleg, logeo. It means to say the same. It's agreeing with God, admitting that what you have done is sin. It is wrong. It is contrary to God. It is offensive to God. Saying, I confess, God. I acknowledge I have sinned. In my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. Saying there is a timer that ticks and ticks and ticks for us to confess and repent from our sins. A time when God may be found. Because you may take this sin to your grave and then you will face God for sin you never confessed. Or maybe, and I have many friends, probably even myself that has experienced this, that there are sins we hide that God is really, really good at surfacing publicly when we don't want it to surface because God wants these things to be in the light and he would much rather and and we would much rather that we bring it to the light rather than he bring it to light whenever he chooses so surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him David has this imagery of a flood rising up and rising up and rising up and rising up and getting closer and closer and closer to the point where he is consumed by this sin he hid. He said there would get to a point where the waters are above me and it would be too late. Friend, don't let unconfessed sin eat you alive. Take off the mask. Get into the light. Find people you trust and be honest. Be honest about it. I promise you there's grace. And there's forgiveness at the cross. And I'm not saying you're not saved. It's not what this whole thing is. Maybe it is. Maybe there's a reality where this is the first time where you, you, there is a saving faith moment that needs to happen. But I can tell you there is healing. And there is grace. And there is so much burden lifted in the light. Take Ananias and Sapphira as an example, friends. Don't let the flood ride up on you. Just be honest. Be clear. 
and walk in the light. Look at what he says, verse 7. You are my hiding place, and you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. That's beautiful. That is grace. That is gospel. I'm going to pray for us here in a second. And let I just say, if, man, if you, wherever you are at here tonight and, and whatever you've got going on, and I'm not trying to like convince you that you have hidden sin, you're like, I feel like I need to say something, even though I don't have anything to say. Hey, you know, right? You know in your spirit, like that, that is there. Um, man, if you need somebody to talk to, find me, find uh, a, a girl or a guy, whatever that is. And we just want to love you. We want to encourage you uh, because that is the first step. Actually, first step is probably here as, as we pray and as we worship that you would just acknowledge that sin to the Lord and you bring it to others that would pray for one another that you may be healed because that's the way God has designed this, that, that this is what we can be as a community of people. It's beautiful. It's scary, but it's beautiful. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for a, um, an intense warning to us that one of the greatest threats to us and, and the church is hypocrisy, that we would claim to have it all together, that we would claim um, that we believe such and such, and, and yet we live a completely different way. God, would you keep that far from us? Would you keep this hypocrisy far from us that we would be so clear and honest about our need for you, our brokenness, our sin, our, strung, our struggles, that when we stumble, we wouldn't try and hide it, but we would confess it so that your grace would be all the more shown in our lives. And we would operate in love and be compelled by your love for us, not trying to earn it, not trying to be good enough to, to be seen as worthy of being saved and worthy to sit in this room, but to love you, to know you, to walk in a relationship with you. God, we so need you. I pray we would be a great example to so many of, of life with you is, is life to the full. It's the abundant life and it's better than anywhere else. And this is not a place of just do's and don'ts and rules and, and a constraining uh, of a good time. But we would know and believe and live in a way that it's so clear that life with you, life as you intended is better than anywhere else. And God, for all of us in this room, we've all sinned. We have all messed up. We have done just stupid things that we regret. I pray that we would not run from you and hide from you and think you are not for us, but you made a way for us in the cross, that you draw us in. God, I pray that we would come to you now and find grace in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we worship.